I'm sorry to disturb you, but I... I've just heard news from the War Office, and I thought you'd all like to know... that the war is over. seemed pretty tidy to me. We will mark the moment in the Great Hall, and I expect all of you, including the kitchen staff and hall boys, everyone, to be there. And cast. Oh, oh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of the Energy of Empire series. You've just heard Lord Grantham of the British TV series Downton Abbey announcing the end of the First World War. That and the ensuing, ever-controversial, Peace Treaty of Versailles will be the subject of this episode. In a dark mirror of 1914, with its predictions of a war that would be over by Christmas, 1918 saw forecasts that the conflict would reign on for several more years. The end came then as something of a surprise. On the Eastern Front, the Bolsheviks withdrew Russia from the war in March of 1918. Under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, they ceded vast areas of land, encompassing large parts of modern-day Poland, Belarus and Ukraine, as well as the Baltic provinces of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, and the Caucasus provinces of Kars and Batum. This land held around a third of the Russian population, over half of its industrial area, nearly 90% of its coalfields, and a quarter of its railways. It was the German government's intention to establish a series of subservient satellite states. This obviously freed up vast numbers of German soldiers to fight on the Western Front. Due to the occupation of the newly acquired territory, however, a million men had to be kept back. The occupation might, therefore, have cost Germany the war. The United States had ended hostilities in April of 1917, but as the US Army consisted of less than 300,000 men, they would not make a substantial impact until the following year. The German command recognised that time was not on their side, but they did have a window of opportunity. General Erich Ludendorff launched an offensive, codenamed Operation Michael, in March 1918. This achieved an unprecedented advance of 40 miles, leading to the Kaiser declaring a national holiday in celebration. Premature celebration, as it turned out. The Germans stretched their forces too thin and had difficulties with supply lines due to the shell-torn terrain. The Allied counteroffensive, the Hundred Days Offensive, began in August 1918. By the end of its first day, a 15-mile gap had been created in the German lines. This is said to have caused a collapse in morale, and General Ludendorff referred to it as the Black Day of the German Army. History professor Ralph Rako's audiobook on World War I quotes Ludendorff as saying, Everything I had feared became here, in this one place, reality. The 8th of August put the decline of our fighting power beyond all doubt. I was convinced that we were now without that safe foundation for the plans of the general headquarters on which I had hitherto been able to build, at least so far as is ever possible in war. Leadership assumes the character of an irresponsible game of chance. The fate of the German people was, for me, too high a stake. 
The war had to be ended. The Allies also pushed through Greece and forced the Bulgarians into a separate armistice in September 1918. An occupied Bulgaria geographically divided the central powers from Turkey, but also threatened Germany's oil supplies in Romania. After the collapse of Russia, the Romanians had signed the Treaty of Bucharest in May, where they withdrew from the war but guaranteed to supply Germany with oil. Due to the crisis on the Western Front, the Germans were now not able to send troops to the East. Austria and Hungary warned that they could continue the war only until December. This is the point the German High Command concluded that they could not win militarily and opted for peace negotiations. They turned to Woodrow Wilson, as they believed they would get a more equitable deal based on his famous 14 points. The German people were made aware that their government was seeking an armistice at the beginning of October. The Kaiser then abdicated and fled the country. The more moderate figure of Prince Maximilian of Baden took charge of a new government on the 3rd of October. This was the birth of the German Republic, later termed the Weimar Republic by Adolf Hitler after the city where it was established. The Ottoman Empire signed an armistice on the 30th of October, with Austria-Hungary following on the 3rd of November. The German armistice of the 11th of November silenced the guns after four years of fighting. And yes, in another one of those remarkable coincidences or something more sinister, the Grand Duke Franz Ferdinand's number plate when he and his wife were shot was AIII118, which you could read as Armistice 111118, if you were so inclined. The armistice ultimately led to the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles, which is really the main focus of this episode. The term Carthaginian peace comes from Rome's sacking of the city of Carthage, where they supposedly poured salt onto the land to ensure the North African state could never rise again. It was applied to the peace settlement with the Germans by economist John Maynard Keynes, who, to quote Ralph Rako's audiobook again, said, The future life of Europe was not their concern. Their preoccupations, good and bad alike, related to frontiers and nationalities, to the balance of power, to imperial aggrandizements, to the future enfeeblement of a strong and dangerous enemy, to revenge, to the shifting by the victors of their unbearable financial burdens onto the shoulders of the defeated. Two rival schemes for the future polity of the world took the field. The 14 points of the president and the Carthaginian peace of Monsieur Clemenceau. This perception that the excessively punitive nature of the Versailles Treaty ultimately brought about Hitler and World War II is, I think, quite common. The book that popularised it, Keynes's the Economic Consequences of the Peace, was a bestseller in the 1920s. Certainly in Britain, the idea seeped into the popular imagination as a cautionary tale of self-fulfilling prophecy. Returning to Downton Abbey, we find this view expressed by Lord Grantham. It was Mike's office on the telephone. There's been a development. Apparently, there's a trial going on in Munich of the leader of a group of thugs there. I read about this. They wear brown shirts and go around bullying people. The leader tried to start a revolution last year. That's it. It was absurd. Oh, maybe, but I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more of this sort of thing. 
We pushed Germany too hard with our demands after the war. It seems it was this gang that got into a fight with Michael. I can easily believe it. They're a horrid bunch from the sound of it. In spite of its popular adherence, it is a view that many prominent historians consider to be a myth. Famous historians such as Neil Ferguson and Margaret Macmillan contend the treaty's aims were not imperialistic, the reparations not excessive, and that Versailles cannot be blamed for the rise of Nazism. Surely the whole Pathidius Albion thesis which I've been exploring, that Britain engineered the First World War as a way to knock out Germany as a rising imperial power, must live or die on this point. If the Versailles Treaty was not punitive, then this cannot have been the reason for the war. As we've been tracking this alternative view on World War I, primarily through the writing of Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor, let's start with a clip of Doherty laying out his case that Versailles crushed Germany. The word which is very important is crush Germany. And when you think about it, the, the several attempts always led from the German side to to bring the war to an end in 15, 16, 17, and 18. All of these were rejected because they could not allow the Germans to come out of this with any element of, of strength, with any element of we are unbeaten. Although there is an argument which says that even as matters uh, happened, the German army, in the end, was not beaten, certainly wasn't crushed. And all of the war, all of the massive destruction, it was hellish destruction in northern France and Belgium. Very little of it happened on German soil. However, what is also very worrying is the notion, and the notion which is current, which is that the war ended in 1918. The war didn't end in 1918. There was an armistice. An armistice is not the end of a war. And that armistice was predicated on President Wilson's 14 points where he magnificently addressed Congress and said, here are all the prerequisites for peace. And this is what, if, if you sign up to this, this is how we can end a world war. The Kaiser and his advisors, that was a, a wonderful idea, were very much in favour of accepting that. They, they could see, realistically, an element of fairness if President Wilson was involved. The British, the French in particular, these two, were far more, far less, let me put it this way, far less honourable than President Wilson. He, he had the element, I would say, of, of an innocent about him in, in terms of the real politic of what was happening in Europe. And basically, they used him, the British and French, used him to let the Germans believe that they would be somehow noble in their treatment and then imposed a treaty which was so incredibly harsh but it, it, it really it, it exploded in all their faces in 1939. I think the best place to start is to scrub away some of Doherty and McGregor's excessively pro-German positions. Whatever accurate criticisms they may levy at the Allied powers, they are, in my opinion, clearly too generous to the German regime. 
The Kaiser and his advisers did not think Woodrow Wilson's 14 points were a wonderful idea that embodied an element of fairness. President Wilson had outlined the points in a speech to Congress in January of 1918, yet it was not until Germany's collapse on the Western Front that they sought peace on those terms. Prior to that, German peace offers had demanded annexation of Belgium and French territory, including the mineral-rich territory of Brie. This remained the case in 1918, after the publication of the points. As a further example of Doherty and McGregor downplaying German imperialism, when they discuss the Treaty of Prestatovsk, they neglect to mention the vast amount of territory Russia was forced to cede. Whether this was justified or not may depend on your view of who started the war, or on the self-determination of the people there, but the Allies took it as a sign of what might be in store for them if they lost. With that German expansionism acknowledged, I will move on. Is it the case, then, that the Treaty of Versailles was an effort to crush Germany? Was it so incredibly harsh that it blew up in the Allies' faces in 1939? The point Doherty and McGregor make is that the Germans offered peace on the basis of the 14 points, which would mean a peace without victory or defeat. Then they got screwed over. Wilson introduced the points by saying, quote, It is our wish and purpose that the processes of peace, when they are begun, shall be absolutely open, and they shall involve and permit henceforth no secret understandings of any kind. The day of conquest and aggrandizement is gone by. What we demand in this war is that the world be made fit and safe for every peace-loving nation which, like our own, wishes to live its own life, determine its own institutions, be assured of justice and fair dealing by the other peoples of the world as against force and selfish aggression. End quote. The German government certainly wanted to interpret this as a sign they wouldn't be blamed for starting the war, left footing a massive bill, and that Germany's territorial integrity would be respected. How you view this really depends on whether you think Germany was surrendering because the defeat was inevitable, and they wanted to avoid an Allied occupation, or whether Germany was looking for a fair and peaceful resolution to the conflict. Doherty and McGregor write, quote, It is often forgotten that Germany's signature to the truce was conditional. On the 12th of October, the Kaiser's government confirmed that it wished to enter into more detailed discussions on an armistice on the understanding that it was predicated upon a joint agreement on the practical details of Wilson's 14 points. End quote. This is only partially accurate. The French and British discovered that the Germans had approached Wilson and that the president was considering responding without consulting them. They ensured he made clear that armistice conditions could only be worked out with the Allies in total. The Allies handed an armistice agreement to the Germans on November the 8th. They agreed to a peace based on Wilson's 14 points, but with an amendment reading, quote, In the conditions of peace laid down in his address to the Congress of January 8th, 1918, the President declared that invading territories must be restored as well as evacuated and freed. The Allied governments feel that no doubt ought to be allowed to exist as to what this provision implies. By it, they understand that compensation will be made by Germany for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allies and their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea, and from the air. End quote. So the Germans did consent to some level of reparations. The armistice also insisted upon the termination of hostilities on the Western Front within six hours of signing, Immediate evacuation of France, Belgium, Luxembourg and Alsace-Lorraine within 15 days. The surrender of 5,000 artillery pieces, 
25,000 machine guns, 3,000 mine throwers, 1,700 aircraft, 5,000 railway locomotives, 150,000 railway carriages, and 5,000 road trucks. The evacuation of territory on the west side of the Rhine within 31 days, with vacated territory to be occupied by Allied troops, maintained at Germany's expense. All minefields on land and sea to be identified. Renunciation of the Treaty of brest with Russia and the Treaty of Bucharest with Romania. Immediate withdrawal of all German troops back to German territory as it was on the 1st of August 1914. Evacuation of German forces in Africa. Immediate release of all Allied prisoners of war and interned civilians without reciprocity. Immediate secession of all hostilities at sea and surrender intact of all German submarines within 14 days. Listed German surface vessels to be interned within seven days and the rest disarmed. And finally, the most contentious one, the naval blockade of Germany to continue. Whatever capacity Germany had to continue the war prior to this point, after accepting these demands, it was clearly completely over. In his book, A Perfidious Distortion of History, The Versailles Treaty and the Success of the Nazis, Professor Jürgen Tamke writes, quote, The signing of the armistice was not an act of preparation for a mutually negotiated peace agreement. It was an unconditional capitulation on the part of the German Empire. End quote. It's hard not to agree with that statement. It's inconceivable that a country with any capacity to go on fighting would have agreed to such terms. The Paris Peace Conference began on the 18th of January 1919. Five major peace treaties emerged from it, named after the palaces in which they were signed. These dealt with Austria, Bulgaria, Hungary and Turkey. I'm going to keep the focus on the Treaty of Versailles with Germany and look at other countries, particularly Turkey, in future episodes. It seems to me very hard to separate a sense of the rights and wrongs of Versailles from one's beliefs regarding who started the war. If you believe Germany did, as an act of imperialist aggression, then reparations and future restrictions on her military may seem entirely fair. If, on the other hand, Germany was fighting an, albeit aggressive, defensive action in response to Russian mobilisation, things appear quite different. I'll play two clips as an example. The first is Ralph Rako's description of Versailles. Rako takes a cynical view of both Britain and France as acting imperialistically. Every territory that can be taken away from Germany is. Although President uh, Wilson announces a policy of self-determination of nations, this is not used in the case of the Germans. A big Poland comes into existence, which is just about two-thirds Polish. Uh, there are Ukrainians over here, uh, many Germans over here. And the Poles are given a corridor to the sea. A German city, a totally German city called Danzig, today called Gdansk, is taken away from Germany and made into a small little country of its own. The Germans say, hey, wait a minute, what's happening here? What happened to self-determination uh, self of nations? Why don't we allow the people of Danzig to say what country they want to belong to? And the Allies say, no, because Poland needs a port on the Baltic, uh, and we can't have Danzig in the hands of Germany. The Poles have to control its foreign policy there as an independent little country. <clears throat> Territory here in the, in the Silesia is given uh, to Poland. This country here, as you can see, Czechoslovakia comes into existence. Czechoslovakia, Czechs and Slovaks, six and a half, <clears throat> six and a half million Czechs, two and a half million Slovaks, three and a half million Germans in the Sudetenland. Okay, 
this territory over here, solidly German, and the Germans say, why don't we allow these Sudeten Germans to become part of Germany uh, on the principle of self-determination of nations? No, because Czechoslovakia needs a for a superior strategic position with the Sudeten and the uh, mountains here in the Erzgebirge, okay? And if we give the Sudetenland to Germany, the Germans will be on the other side of the mountains. Strategic reasons uh, dictate that they be made part of Czechoslovakia. The same thing happens with the South Tyrol here, where the Italians are given German territory to take them to the Brenner Pass. Austria becomes a little rump country there, with a big bloated capital of Vienna, two, two and a half million people and about five in the rest of the country. The Austrians say, what if we join together with Germany? Might as well now. Uh, the Habsburg days are over. The uh, treaties say there is never to be, there is never to be any association between Austria and Germany, regardless of what the, the people there want. German colonies are taken away. Um, and um, the, German, the Germans are effectively disarmed. The German army is to be limited to 100,000 men. Do you know how many uh, cops it uh, takes to more or less keep um, controlled anarchy in New York City? Huh? 25,000. The whole German army is to be 100,000, which is less than the army of Lithuania. Uh, in other words, Germany is effectively disarmed. No military aircraft, no submarines, strictly limited number of surface ships. The Germans are also forced to sign Article 231 of the Treaty of Versailles, which says, we admit that we were solely responsible for this war. Unprecedented in history, where the defeated power is required to admit its guilt for having start, started the war. <clears throat> and then the question of reparations. Um, the uh, idea of reparations is accepted by the Allies. The Germans say, how much should we pay? And the French say, well, you just start sending things. <laughs> Some people, uh, Keynes has a very good book on this, uh, The Economic Consequences of the Peace. It's one of his best books, really. Um, some people are talking in terms of $100 billion, okay? We're talking about an age when $100 billion was money, okay? Yeah. Um, uh, finally, the um, reparations figure is put at $32 billion. But the reparations problem plagues Europe for, well, until 1933. You have the attempted uh, French hegemony over the continent here. Okay? Germany is to be kept down by the division of, the, of uh, excision of territories, by reparations, by the military restrictions on the German military forces. Beyond that, the French enter into alliances with the new states, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Romania. These are supposed to somehow counterbalance Germany on the east to play the role that Russia had. Russia no, no longer can play the role since it's a communist country. Now contrast that with Margaret Macmillan's view. Macmillan, by the way, is the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George, British wartime prime minister and chief negotiator at Versailles. And then you had France. And what the French wanted, I think, above all, was security. And this is something I think we have to understand. I mean, when the French are accused of being vindictive, short-sighted, wanting to keep German power down, you have to remember what had happened to France. In most cases, or certainly in the cases of anyone over the age of about 50, in people's lifetimes, Georges Clemenceau, the French <coughs> Prime Minister, had been a young man in Paris when the German Confederation had invaded in 1870. He had lived through the siege of Paris. He had known what French defeat in that war, the Franco-Prussian War, had meant for France. 
and a lot of French people knew that. And in 1914, France had not invaded Germany. It had not declared war on Germany. Germany had declared war on France and had invaded France. And a great deal of the Western Front ran right through the north of France. It ran through Belgium, of course, but it ran through the north of France, an area which in France contained or had contained something like 40% of its infrastructure, its mines, its iron mills, its industries, its railways, its bridges, and a lot of that had been destroyed, both in the course of the fighting and by the Germans as they retreated finally out of France, out of the occupied territories in the summer of 1918. And so I think you have to understand what it was that the French had experienced, what it was they feared they might be experiencing yet a third time. And that was certainly something that a number of French leaders, including Marshal Foch, the Supreme Allied Commander-in-Chief, the, the great French general, feared. He said when he made the armistice in 1918, he said it is a 20 years armistice. Because what the French feared as they looked at Germany was a country which was, in the end, more powerful than France. It was sitting right there in the middle of Europe. It had been relatively untouched by the war. Of course, Germany had suffered during the war, but none of the war, very little of the war, had been fought on German soil. And so the French looked at a Germany where the infrastructure was untouched, where there was a growing population. German women were having more infants than French women were in spite of every effort by the French government to encourage French women to do their patriotic duty. The demographic gap was opening between Germany and France. There were more potential German soldiers coming along every year, and that was something the French were very aware of. So what the French wanted was security. They wanted some of them, Germany, to be broken up into separate states, as it had been before 1871, but that was not going to happen. Neither Lloyd George or Wilson would, would accept that but they wanted some way of keeping Germany under control. What they also feared, and this was also a lively fear, but perhaps second to the fear of Germany, was the spread of Russian Bolshevism into France. There was already a very lively left-wing movement in France, and on the 1st of May 1919, the peace conference virtually came to a standstill in Paris because there were left-wing demonstrations, many of which turned violent, and then there was an equally violent crackdown by the authorities. It is said, no one will ever know, but it is said that several hundred people may have died in the clashes on the 1st of May. And so what the French were also afraid of was not just a resurgent Germany, but the spread, as they saw it, of a very dangerous political ideology from the East. And so what they wanted was both a Germany that was kept under control, but they also wanted what they called a cordon sanitaire, a ring of nations around the new Bolshevik state, which would somehow try and contain Bolshevism. And so you see, the justice of Versailles cannot be separated out from a wider view of the causes of the war. Let's look at some of the contentious parts. The Germans and their allies were forced to accept the guilt of starting the war. The infamous Article 231 of the treaty reads, quote, that the allies and associated governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the allies and associated governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. End quote. In Germany, this was the most contentious part. Their chief delegate to Versailles, Count Ehrlich von Brockdorf-Rantzau, said of it, We are far from declining any responsibility for this great war having come to pass and for its having been carried on in the way it was. But we energetically deny that Germany and its people, who were convinced that they were waging a war of defense, 
were alone guilty. The German National Assembly initially voted to sign the treaty, provided this article was removed. They only capitulated under the threat of a looming invasion, and then with less than two hours to go. The feeling in Germany was such that the signatory, Finance Minister Matthias Erzberger, was murdered by right-wing nationalists two years later. Irrespective of how accurate it is, the German people believed they had been fighting a defensive war imposed upon them. This narrative of injustice became perhaps the central plank of nationalist propaganda right through to the Second World War. Another major point of contention was the continued imposition of the hunger blockade. Again, we can hear Count Brockdorf Ransau comment, The hundreds of thousands of non-combatants who have perished since November 11th by reason of the blockade were killed with cold deliberation after our adversaries had conquered and victory was assured to them. Think of that when you speak of guilt and punishment. In addition to the between half and three quarters of a million German civilians who died due to the British hunger blockade during the war, its continuation in the months afterwards is estimated to have killed another 100,000. Historian Sally Marx blames the German government for this, as they would not hand their merchant ships over to the Allies to receive food. The Germans were concerned they would be confiscated. Marx also contends that post-war German starvation was a myth. However, there seems to be ample evidence that it took place. Historian C. Paul Vincent writes in his book, The Politics of Hunger, quote, In early March 1919, General Herbert Plummer, commander of the British Army of Occupation, informed Prime Minister David Lloyd George that his men were begging to be sent home. They could no longer stand the sight of hordes of skinny and bloated children pouring over the offal from the British camps. End quote. Also in March 1919, Winston Churchill told the British House of Commons, quote, We are holding all our means of coercion in full operation, or an immediate readiness for use. We are enforcing the blockade with vigour. We have strong armies ready to advance at the shortest notice. Germany is very near starvation. The evidence I have received, sent by officers from the War Office all over Germany, shows, first of all, the great privations which the German people are suffering, and, secondly, the great danger of a collapse of the entire structure of German social and national life under the pressure of hunger and malnutrition. Now is therefore the moment to settle. End quote. It could be speculated that the blockade had a devastating long-term effect on Germany and wider Europe. Ralph Rako writes off an English journalist who published an article in September 1918 titled The Huns of 1940, where he wrote of his hope of tens of thousands of Germans now in the wombs of famished mothers who are destined for a life of physical informity. It's hard to believe such a thing was written, even during wartime, but the result may have come to pass, just not in the way that was expected. A 1938 study into 600 of Hitler's followers revealed that, quote, the most striking emotional effect expressed are the adult memories of intense hunger and the privation from childhood. End quote. Psychologist Peter Lowenberg wrote in The Psychohistorical Origins of the Nazi Youth Cohorts quote, The war and post war experiences of the small children and youth of World War I explicitly conditioned the nature and success of National Socialism. The new adults who became politically effective after 1929 and who filled the ranks of the stormtroopers, brown shirts, and the other paramilitary party organizations, 
were the children socialized in the First World War. End quote. Germany lost vast amounts of territory. It was forced to give up its colonies, which covered today's Tanzania, Togo, Cameroon, and Namibia in Africa, Tsingdao in China, as well as various islands in the Pacific. The justification for this was German maladministration and ill-treatment of the indigenous peoples. The Germans were accused of committing the 20th century's first genocide by driving the Namibian Herero people into the desert, where up to 100,000 perished from thirst and starvation. I have recently read Bruce Gilley's book, In Defense of German Colonialism, which disputes this, but I think it's wise to be cynical of colonialist revisionist history, and I really don't know what to make of it. Whilst the territorial loss was massive, the colonies brought very little to Germany in terms of wealth. Back in Europe, in addition to relinquishing the territory gained from Russia, Germany ceded 25,000 square miles of its territory, around 13% of the total. This mostly went to newly recreated Poland. This territory contains 7 million people, around 10% of the total German population. It is worth noting, however, that much of this land had only been acquired by Germany in the previous half century, and that not all the people in it were ethnically German. The iron-rich province of Alsace-Lorraine went back to France, who also took the Saar coal mines. The part of the treaty that has created the most debate is the reparations, which, depending on who you read, were either utterly crushing or barely an inconvenience. Whilst the amount of reparations was in principle huge, no less an economist than Ludwig von Mises has weighed in to assert that actual German repayments were very low, and that the German economic woes had more to do with government spending and money printing, and ultimately the crash of 1929. There's obviously no doubt Germany was vastly diminished as a result of the war. However, by the mid-1920s, much of her industrial outputs were greater than they had been in 1914. The absence of an occupation allowed for covert rearmament, and the British held back on dividing Germany up altogether, and even on the territorial secessions to Poland. David Lloyd George resisted this as he felt, correctly, that a large population of Germans living outside of Germany would create future conflict. You could cynically also suppose that Britain wanted something of a strong Germany to counterbalance France on the continent. Whilst not disproving the Pythidius Albion thesis, words like Carthaginian or crushed are clearly too strong. One final criticism I would make of Pythidius Albion is the state Britain was left in after the war. Neil Ferguson asks his readers to imagine, quote, a country which, as a result of the First World War, effectively lost 22% of its national territory, incurred debts equivalent to 136% of gross national product, a fifth of it owed to foreign powers, saw inflation and unemployment rise to levels not seen for more than a century, and experienced an equally unprecedented wave of labour unrest. End quote. He is talking about Britain and the loss of the 26 Irish counties. Ferguson, who describes the war as nothing less than the greatest error of modern history, concludes his book by writing, quote, By fighting Germany in 1914, Asquith, Gray and their colleagues helped ensure that, when Germany did finally achieve predominance on the continent, Britain was no longer strong enough to provide a check to it. End quote. If it all was an imperial plan, then, it was certainly a very bad one. So this concludes my overview of the work of Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor and the Pythidius Albion theory of World War I. I hope to follow it up with interviews that might enable coming down on one side or the other of the line more firmly. At the moment, I'm planning to do one more episode in this season on the League of Nations. Then I'll be going back across the Atlantic to resume the US focus. 
Thank you very much for listening. If you've appreciated this content and would like to support the further production of it, a donation and subscription button is in the info box. 